always a always a theme that runs through the morning. It seems like this morning, it seems like the the promised land is the theme that's running through the the worship time. Even this morning in the Genesis study, we talked about them standing, um, Moses preaching, as they the the people stood ready to enter the promised land. Promised land, of course. Of course, the uh, song is talking about the eschatological, the, the promised land as we pro- enter, enter into uh, heavenly rest with our Lord. Now, what, a, what, an amazing, what an amazing thought. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Our, uh, it's time, great to be here with you this morning. I just want you to know that we serve a, a Lord who is a gentle shepherd. I'm always amazed at our Lord's kindnesses to us. He cares for us even when we don't deserve it. This past week, my daughter brought uh, John 10 to my mind. I I love Jesus' words in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We know that that Jesus would ultimately lay down his life for, for those who he came to save on the cross. He, he, he is the ultimate gentle shepherd of the, of the sheep. The, the Word of God in Matthew 11 says that He is uh, gentle and, and He's humble in heart. He gives us rest for our souls. That's the whole idea of, of Psalm 23, uh, which we, by the way, are going to study at our winter retreat. Just a little plug here for uh, Pastor Kreloff. We're going to study Psalm 23. Just listen to David's words as we, as we look forward to that, that time. David says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. You know, you shouldn't get the wrong idea though, right? That being gentle and humble means that we avoid conflict. Just listen to Jesus' words again in John chapter 10. He says this, He who is the hired, a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, who sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, then the wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. You see, Jesus expects us as His under-shepherds to stand and fight the wolves who come to injure and scatter the sheep. The sheep can never rest if they're being pursued by wolves. That's the point. Any shepherd of the sheep who is unwilling to protect the sheep is unfit to serve in the church. In Jesus' words, they are hired hands who are not concerned about the sheep. They want to see, they want people to see, the, they don't want people to see the, the, the greatness of their name, of his name, if they're a hired hand. But if they are one who is a under-shepherd, a true under-shepherd. They want people to see the greatness of His name. They want people to be zealous to serve Him by preaching the Gospel. Yet in all of this, Jesus wants His followers to have a great intimacy with Him. Listen to His gentle words in John 10, 14-15. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The Lord Jesus laid down His life for the sheep, and that must be the motivation of every one of His shepherds. Those who would be leaders of His people, they must be willing to lay down their lives because He died for us. This is the mark of every true under-shepherd, a willingness to lay down one's life. Well, in the context of John 10, Jesus was confronting the false shepherds of Israel. They were leading the people astray from the true nature of the kingdom of God. They were, in fact, hired hands. And they had the blood of the people on their hands. And this is the same group of people that John the Baptist confronted during his ministry, as we've seen in in Matthew chapter 3. John warned them. John warned them of God's impending wrath, especially on those who take advantage of of others. You see, any leader of God's people should be warned in the same way. I stand warned. I stand warned. God expects us as under-shepherds to care for His sheep. 
That is the greatest message, that is the greatest warning that I get from this text this morning, or from this text in Matthew chapter 3, that John the Baptist is warning these men against uh, the, the, what they're doing to the people. Well, as I said this morning, we're returning to our series <coughs> in Matthew's Gospel. We have titled it, The King and His Glory. The study this morning is an exciting one because we get to see, for the first time, we get to see the King. Get to see the Lord Jesus. So let's start with prayer, and we'll jump into the text in Matthew chapter 3. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again and praise you. Father, we pray this morning that we would see the majesty, the majesty, the majestic nature of this time where the Lord Jesus appeared before John the Baptist to be baptized. The coronation of the King. Father, I pray that we would see the difference between the wicked leadership of Israel and their expectations of the people and, and how they lorded over the people and the gentleness of the King. Father, I pray that we would See that and that we would take heed even this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You can turn in your texts. Scripture to Matthew chapter 3. Starting in verse 13. Matthew writes, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I, need to be I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As we've seen in his gospel, Matthew presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the true and rightful King of Israel and of the world. We need to keep in mind that this actually is Matthew's approach as he's writing the gospel. The other gospel writers have their own particular approaches and presenting the good news of Jesus the Messiah. But Matthew wants the world to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised King. He is the anointed one. He is Israel's Messiah. <clears throat> In fact, Matthew wants everyone to know that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In almost every line and paragraph, Matthew points to the king and his glory. In our verses this morning, Matthew presents the king's coronation. This is the crowning of the rightful king. And this really is, by the way, an amazing text. Now we have the herald of the king who has labored to make ready the way of the Lord. That's Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. And what's happening now is that he is almost fully completed his duty. And he has just one more job to do. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, there's something strikingly majestic about this text. All of the anticipation of the previous text seems to come to fulfillment here because as we come to Matthew 3.13, we read the words, then cometh Jesus, end quote. In this text, Matthew introduces Jesus for the first time. In his gospel, Luke gives us a glimpse of Jesus as a boy, but this is the first time that we see Jesus fully ready to be unveiled as the true king in all his glory. Everything that Matthew has told us up to this point in his gospel has been in anticipation of this, this one moment. He has given us information about the various aspects of, of Jesus' arrival. He's given us the, the gene, genealogy. He's given us the circumstances around his birth. He's given us even the ministry of his herald, John the Baptist. But now Jesus, now Jesus comes into full view. 
It is the moment that ultimately, if you're reading the text, you ought to be anticipating. We've been talking about who he is, but now we get to see him in full focus. From this point forward, the king has arrived. And he will take a place, the place of prominence and, and, and by, may I say, preeminence in Matthew's gospel. Make no mistake, Jesus is the king. He is the king. And Matthew aims to prove it. Now, as we dive into our text this morning, <clears throat> let me remind you of the context here in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we saw that Matthew used the, the ministry of the king's herald John the Baptist has further proof that Jesus is the true king who deserves our worship. <clears throat> First, we showed that John's ministry was marked by being a unique messenger. He was a unique messenger. Said another way, John's ministry stood in direct contrast to Israel's religious elite class. They were in Jerusalem while he was in the wilderness of the Jordan River. They had all the comforts of the age while he dressed in camel's hair and, and wore a leather belt around his waist. They ate the finest foods while he ate what the land provided. In effect, his life and ministry were forms of judgment on the religious elites. Now, in his uniqueness, John also came preaching an unrivaled message. Put simply, John called the nation of Israel, and especially her leaders, <coughs> to repentance. He warned them that the kingdom of heaven was near. In other words, the king was at the door and he was waiting to enter the scene. And, as, and his kingdom would be made up of those who specifically who would repent of their sins and turn to him and trust in him fully. And we also found that John had an unusual mission. John called for repentance, but he also baptized people as they confessed their sins. This was unusual because at the time, at that point, baptism was only used for proselytes, for Gentile proselytes or those who had converted to Judaism. Now, the Jews saw themselves as sons of Abraham, and as, as such, they were already sons of the covenant. They were already there. They were already in the kingdom, according to their thinking. <coughs> in their mind, in their mind, it would have been outrageous to think that they needed to repent, and, and it would have been even more outrageous to think that they needed to be baptized in order to in, enter into the kingdom. They were already there. But John informed them that the king was coming, that the king was coming, that he was at the door, and that only the repentant would be part of his kingdom. Now, that message has not changed. It's the same message today. Only the repentant, only those who turn to Christ, only those who turn from their sins, only those who've been cleansed by the blood of our Lord will be in the kingdom. Now John, <coughs> John on his part, John on his part puts up an uncompromising mirror toward the, the Jewish elite class or the religious leaders. Ultimately, Herod would imprison and behead John because of his unrelenting focus on the sins of Israel's ruling and religious class classes. You see that John's, John's uncompromising mirror clearly reflected their need for true repentance. That's Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The religious elite from, from Jerusalem were curious about what was causing all this uproar in the wilderness, so they traveled there to see it. Now, I don't think they came to be baptized by John. Now, you may have heard the saying, I'm sure you have, uh, that curiosity killed the cat, right? Well, it was curiosity. I think they came because they were curious about the uproar over John's ministry. Evidently, they saw John the Baptist as a potential threat to their comfortable lives because of what he was saying. And John responded to their presence. He told them. He warned them. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. True repentance, then, always bears good fruit. And beloved, only a good tree bears good fruit. And what John is saying is, is y'all ain't good trees. Because you don't bear good fruit. You need to change. In the words of John Bunyan, <clears throat> he says, Every tree that bringeth, forth, bringeth not forth good fruit is uh, cut down or hewn down. Now before the fruit can be good, the tree must be good. For good fruit makes not a good tree, but a good tree bringeth forth good fruit. End quote. 
Beloved, it's the same way now, again. Only good trees bring forth good fruit. In the case of these men, their spiritual fruit was rotten. They may have looked good on the outside, right? They may have looked spiritual. They may have looked religious. But if you were to peel back the onion of their life, you wouldn't find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You wouldn't find those kind of things. What you would find was the deeds of the flesh. You would find sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmities and strifes and jealousies and outbursts of anger and selfish ambitions and dissensions and factions and envying and drunkenness and carousing. Those are the kind of things that you would find if you were to peel back the onion of their life. And if you think about it, it's the same today. If we were to peel back the onion of your life, what are we going to find? What are we going to find? Paul says in Galatians 5, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why John said, John said, why are you fleeing from the wrath to come? These men were like snakes, serpents fleeing the fire. But they didn't recognize that they could not flee God's eternal wrath unless they turned from their sin. Unless they repented. You see, John's uncompromising mirror clearly reflected their need for a true restoration. A true restoration. That's Matthew 3, 9, and 10. In Matthew 3, 9, uh, John told them not to appeal to their status as sons of Abraham. You see, these wicked leaders thought that they were in the kingdom by virtue of their heritage. Yet John wanted them to know that that was meaningless. God didn't, didn't need their supposed birthright. <coughs> in fact, in fact, John told them that he could make children from the common stones in the riverbed. That's how, I mean, that's how powerful our Lord is. And, and really, that's a, that's a hint to the church, isn't it? God would raise up people from outside the Jews. He would save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. These men were treading on, on thin ice because of their incredible arrogance. And oh, by the way, beloved, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. You see, God would save them if they displayed true humility. Now, some did. We see them in the, in the, the disciples of, the, of our Lord. But most did not. And according to Matthew 3.10, the Lord was standing at the door. He, he was swinging the axe of judgment upon those who refused to repent. They needed to be restored to a right relationship to their, with their Creator, yet they could not achieve that on their own. Therefore, John's mirror, uncompromising mirror uh, clearly reflected, reflected their need for a true Redeemer. Again, this is all, this is all review and context. In Matthew 3.11, John tells them that the mighty one is coming. Literally, he's at the door. I mean, literally, right there. And John repents, preached the repentance and, and he baptized with water, but this one, this one would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, and we would see that coming up in, in the book of Acts. This was John's announcement that the king's arrival was imminent. At any moment, Israel's Messiah, the true king, would arrive for his coronation. Israel, who, who had hoped for their great redeemer, uh, yet, yet these men had it all twisted. They were looking for a man who would restore them as a nation. They were looking for a man who would lead them politically. They were looking for a man who would be like an earthly king. They wanted out from under the hand of the Romans. They wanted to continue their comfortable existence unimpeded. But in their pride, in their hubris, their overwhelming pride and self-confidence, they missed the true nature of God's kingdom. And that my friends, is the issue. Now, just a little preview. Jesus would re will reveal the true nature of His kingdom in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through That's where we're going. But here in Matthew 3-12, John warns these men that Jesus had come to clear His threshing floor. It's interesting to me that, that people characterize Jesus' first coming as being meek and mild, while His second coming is characterized as coming in judgment. And, and in a very real sense, that is true. He even says that in John 12-47. Uh, but 
he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, in 1247, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So we do see this meek and mild Lord coming. Yet we should never forget John 1248. According to Jesus, it will be the word which he spoke that judges those who reject him. In other words, those who reject his word have been judged already. He will gather his wheat. He will gather those who believe in his word. They will be saved to dwell with him forever, but he will burn up the chaff. The chaff, those who hate and reject his word, and they will endure his judgment on that final day, and they will be burned with an unquenchable fire forever. Beloved, those aren't my words. Those aren't my words. Those are John's words. And, and by the way, they're our Lord's words. And I hope you believe them to be true, because I do. So with that, John has set the stage for the coronation of the King of Kings and the, and the Lord of Lords. We don't know how long John's ministry lasted prior to this moment. It could have been a few months since they were only six months apart. It could have even been a year or even more. We don't know. The text doesn't say, but we know this with all certainty. We know this, that John had fulfilled his ministry, yet he had one major task left. The Messiah, Israel's king, was standing at the door. He was truly at hand, and the stage was set. So with that, here in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Matthew recounts the king's coronation. He, he gives us four major highlights. First, he emphasizes the herald's aversion. Second, he emphasizes the son's antecedents. Third, he emphasizes the Holy Spirit's anointing. And fourth, the Father's announcement. Now, as we study the king's coronation, he is here. Let's look at Matthew's first emphasis, the herald's aversion. <clears throat> look at your Bibles in Matthew 3.13. It simply says in the Legacy Standard Bible, then Jesus arrived. Then Jesus arrived. Again, everything in Matthew's first three chapters has anticipated this very moment. The king was here. The king had appeared. Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived on the scene. In the words of John MacArthur, after an eternity of glory in heaven and some 30 years of virtual obscurity on earth, the Messiah King is manifested publicly for the world to see and to know. And I want you to think about something, by the way, end quote. But I want you to think about something and think about the situation. He is in the wilderness of the Jordan when he comes to, for the world to see. Now, we know from Luke 3.21 that this was a very public event. Jesus was not baptized. He didn't present himself to John the Baptist alone, but along with, with many other people. This was a, a, public, a public stage, but as with, with Jesus' birth, again, what we have to understand is very, very understated. Our Lord chose to be unveiled on the Jordan River. It was nothing special. I would argue... I would, I would argue this. It's one of the reasons why the Bible rings to be true. If, it, if this originated from man alone, the king is here. I mean, we're talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus would have arrived in a grand chariot to a grand temple. Would he not? As it happened, he came on foot alone without family and friends. There was no grand procession. I mean, I'm... I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, this is amazing, this is majestic, this is incredible, because it is. Yet he arrived at a desolate place. He, he came to be baptized by John, and, and I can tell you now, it would be understated for me to say that John wasn't dignified. You know, John wasn't impressive the way the world would say should, you, you should be, right? On the... On, on the cover, John didn't seem fit for any king, let alone the, the, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, right? It's pretty clear, it's pretty clear that, that if, if man had written this, it would have been completely different. 
Now, it's also clear from gospel account, the gospel accounts that John had recognized Jesus immediately. Now, we don't know how well John knew Jesus when he arrived. They, they, were, they were cousins, and, and we do know that their mothers were well acquainted. So it, it stands to reason that they were both at least aware of one another. They, it stands to reason also that John was aware of the miraculous circumstances surrounding the, the Lord's birth. You know, Mary had actually stayed with Elizabeth for three months prior to, to John's birth. So Luke tells us that, that John's mother even knew that the baby in Mary's womb was her Lord. That's Luke one forty three. One, one would think that Elizabeth would have shared that story, that wonderful, amazing story with her family, and specifically with John, her son. The angel had even told her that, that John would be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's Luke one seventeen. Now, we do know, we're pretty sure, that both the boys grew up around their own families and not with one another. We can't know for sure, but there's no indication that they had any other contact prior to this moment on the Jordan River. I mean, really, if you think about it, this is probably the only contact that they had, or for the most part. But it's at this moment in history that Jesus appeared to be crowned as king by John the Baptist. But what an amazing, amazing situation. Look back at your text in verse 14. Right. Yeah, look back at your text in verse 14. Jesus came to, to John to be baptized by him, but that was absolutely unthinkable to John. John had such a strong aversion to this idea because he understood that Jesus was different from the others who needed uh, baptism. He had already identified him as, as being the Lamb of God. That's John one twenty nine. Jesus saw he saw Jesus coming and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." You see, John understood who Jesus was. He had, he had come to redeem his people. He, Jesus had no need to repent of his sin, which was, by the way, John's message. Repent, right? Repent and be baptized. Jesus didn't have any need. He was sinless. So John's first reaction, dare I say, was a, a guttural reaction. Uh, his guttural reaction was to say, no, absolutely not. I have need to be baptized by you. Why in the world would you ever need me to baptize you? In today's language, it'd be, he, he might be saying, ain't nothing right about this, Lord. Ain't nothing right about this. In the, in the words of D.A. Carson, earlier John had difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. Now he was having trouble baptizing Jesus because the baptism, his baptism, was not worthy of Jesus. End quote. Well, this leads us to Matthew's second emphasis. Matthew emphasizes the son's antecedents. Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered him and said to him, Permit it at this time. And now, there's been a, there've been lots of discussion as to why John, Jesus presented himself, requested John to baptize him. Uh, clearly, Jesus was not a, a sinner in need of repentance, and so therefore there have been several explanations give by, given by various folks. There's an apocryphal book called The Gospel According to the Hebrews that suggests that Jesus asked for baptism because his mother and his brothers wanted him to do it. Some Gnostics suggest that Jesus needed uh, baptism, the baptism to transform him into the divine logos, um, in other words, they believe that Jesus at the, up until that point was just an ordinary man. In, in other words, a sinful man like everyone else. But at his baptism, he was infused by the divine logos, uh, the divine word or the Christ spirit, you might say. Uh, his baptism was necessary then for purification and to, to him to be suitable to receive the divine endowment. Now, believe me, beloved, we need to reject that as completely untrue. Our Lord was perfect from the beginning. He didn't need this infusion of, of the Christ Spirit. It's a Gnostic idea. 
We can tell from the language, though, that John was absolutely adamant that, Je- that Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He had, he had refused, again, to baptize the, the Pharisees and Sadducees as well, but for the opposite reason, they needed to repent, but, but showed no indication or fruit that they had. Jesus had no need for baptism, but requested it anyway. John then was just as resistant to baptize Jesus as he was to baptize the religious elite, but for exactly the opposite reason. Again, the question is why? Why did Jesus insist on this? Now, some have further suggested that he was using baptism as an initiation into his high priesthood. Others have said that it's Jesus' recognition of John's role, ministry, and authority. Still others suggest that Jesus wanted to identify with Gentile proselytes through the act of baptism. There's another interesting view that says the Lord submitted to baptism for the sins of mankind. This would make his baptism part of the redemptive work along with his death on the cross. But notice that Jesus says, permitted at this time. You see, Jesus clearly understood that John, why John was hesitant. He knew that John had a sincere and committed heart to the ways of the Lord. He even, he even seems to affirm his, his spiritual superiority. He said, the phrase permitted at this time is to say, this may not seem appropriate. I understand that you're struggling, but it's appropriate for this very moment in redemptive history. This is the moment that the baton is being passed from the herald of the king to the king. It's it's an incredibly majestic moment. It was the climax of John's ministry and the, the launching point of our Lord's. In effect, the Lord gave John divine instruction to baptize him. Look back at your text. It says, For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, it was God's plan all along for John to baptize Jesus. May I say, from before the foundation of the world. And John John couldn't have fully grasped that. Jesus had to reveal it to him. So therefore, this act of baptism then fulfilled John's ministry and then launched Jesus's. It was critical to be done just as God had planned. This baptism was then the inauguration of the Messiah's ministry. It was the the Trinitarian proclamation that the king had arrived. Now, other than it being the Father's will to fulfill, will fulfilling his plans, that doesn't answer the specific question of why Jesus was baptized. I understand that. I'm not sure we can actually fully answer that question, but it seems that that Jesus' baptism set the example to his followers of of what it means to be obedient. In his life, Jesus modeled obedience in every way. He was obedient to the Father. As he was going to the cross, he prayed to the Father, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, but yet not my will, but your will be done. Now, Jesus was even obedient to human authorities such as his parents. In, John, in Luke 2.51, it says he continued in subjection to them, and his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. I mean, he, he continued to be in subjection to his father and mother. He even subjected himself to governing the governing authorities. And in Matthew 17, we'll see later that some tax collectors came to Peter and asked Jesus why he didn't, or asked him why Jesus didn't pay a certain tax. When Peter asked Jesus about it. Jesus paid the taxes even as he affirmed that they were exempt from doing so. He submitted himself in obedience to these human authorities. In every situation in his life and his ministry, Jesus modeled proper submission, always submitting to the Father's will, always submitting to the authorities where it was appropriate. And so by submitting to John's baptism, he affirmed John's ministry. And in effect, in effect, he affirmed John's message of repentance. He endorsed John's baptism as being right and good. His action, his action attested that it was God's will to which men should submit. The writer of Hebrews, affir- Hebrews affirms that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Jesus came into this world to identify with us. He has walked in our shoes, so to speak. 
Isaiah says that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was one of us, yet he himself bore our sins. He has interceded for us. You see, Jesus had no need for repentance because he had no sin, yet he willingly identified with the sinners he came to save. The sinless lamb submitted to a baptism for sinners. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the baptism was essential. It was part of the work which he came to do, which was not only to take on our nature, but to identify himself with us in sin, end quote. And in this way, Jesus' act of baptism looked forward to the cross. He gladly suffered on the cross, not as a sinner. He, he, willingly, he willingly was submitting, submitted himself to baptism, not as a sinner. He was the sinless Lamb of God. He gladly suffered on the cross, not as a sinner. He was the sinless Lamb of God. He suffered the Father's wrath on the cross, not for sins he had committed. He suffered for our sins. The Father sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, Jesus' baptism not only was a symbol of His identity with sinners, but was a symbol of His death and resurrection. Therefore, a prefigurement of Christian baptism. You get that? It looks forward. It looks forward to the cross. It looks forward to His death, the burial, and resurrection. D.A. Carson says it this way, By undergoing baptism, Jesus anticipates His own baptism of death by which He secures righteousness for all. End quote. This leads us to the next emphasis. Matthew emphasizes the Spirit's anointing. Look back at your text in verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. Now, you may notice that Jesus came up up from the water. In just a moment, we're going to have a baptism. The act of Jesus' baptism presupposes that baptism is a full immersion in the water. Now, if you're putting this all together, you recognize that part of the purpose of Jesus' baptism is to be an example to us. So therefore, I don't know about you, but when I was baptized, I wanted to be fully immersed in baptism, just like my Lord. Why would you want it any other way? Now, when Jesus came up from the waters of baptism, Matthew tells us that, behold, the heavens were opened. Now, there have been several instances of the heavens being opened for men to see. And in the Old Testament, Ezekiel was given a vision of God in Ezekiel 1.1. Isaiah was given a vision of God's throne room in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6.1. In the New Testament, Stephen, when he was being stoned, Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul was was taken up, the Apostle Paul was taken up into the third heaven where he saw inexpressible things. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 3 and 4. John, the Apostle, saw several visions of heaven. We saw, see that throughout Revelation. None that are, there's several, but the Revelation 4, 1 being one of them. He says, after these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now back in Matthew, the the heavens were opened to show the heavenly glories of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This this scene gives us just a a glimpse, just a a hint of the heavenly heavenly unity enjoyed within the Trinity from all eternity. Notice in your text, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. God had revealed to John that this was what he he would see as a sign of who Jesus was. In John 1.33, it says, And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
See, John may have suspected, but this was full affirmation. This was full affirmation that Jesus was the true king. That Jesus was the Son of God. Some have tried to say that Jesus lost his divinity when he took on flesh and became a baby, but that's error. Jesus never lost his divinity. He was never less than God. But in his humanity, he needed strength. He needed anointing. The the Spirit descended upon him and abided upon him, giving him that strength that he needed. And as we progress in our study, we'll see the Spirit strengthening our Lord. The Spirit empowered him uh, to cast out demons in Matthew 12. Uh, And we see that the Spirit... Uh, uh, has, has given him the, the power to uh, perform miracles. We see that recounted in Acts chapter 2. We see it recounted in Acts chapter 10 that they, the Spirit gave him power to do good and, and to heal. You see that the Spirit strengthened Jesus and gave him power from on high, but we're talking about his humanity. Uh, he strengthened him not only in those ways, but he also strengthened him in his, his human need for food and, and for rest. We see, we'll see this in Matthew 4 in his wilderness temptation. We'll also see it in various other times in his, his ministry. More than anything, at this moment as Jesus rose from the waters of baptism, the Spirit's pre- presence was a wonderful and amazing sign to all who were watching that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, and He was, in fact, the King, Israel's Messiah. John's ministry, or John's mission, was, in fact, complete. He would decrease while Jesus increased. And the Spirit anointed then Jesus as the true King. And this was just as the prophet Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 42.1, Behold, my servant whom I Uphold my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And Isaiah 61.1, Isaiah says, The spirit of Yahweh is upon me uh, because Yahweh has appointed me, anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Now on a side note, You may recall from our study in Genesis the Spirit's involvement in creation. And last week I argued that this was the this scene, John's ministry, and this scene began the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies in Isaiah 40 through 66. These prophecies culminate with the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, This hints at the Spirit's involvement in bringing about all these events. This brings us to Matthew's final and critical emphasis. Matthew emphasizes the Father's announcement. Look back at your text in verse 17. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we don't have time to fully explore the fullness of this statement. But in the the Father's announcement of His approval, we hear the echoes of the words of David and Isaiah from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Psalm 2-7, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh, he has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him, we saw that earlier, and he will bring justice to the nations. Again, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, the Father The Father in heaven fully attesting to the fact that Jesus in fact was His beloved Son who alone is worthy to be King. Something similar will happen in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration in which He says, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At this point, again, we need to emphasize the grand, incredible nature of the Trinity as they pronounced together the King had arrived. I cannot overstate how important this is. Even though the scene is incredibly understated, we're again, we're in the wilderness of, of, of the Jordan River, and, and the Lord is now being, has now appeared, the King of creation. He was ready for His mission. It was time for John to go his way and for Jesus to take center stage. And here at the baptism of Jesus, we see all three persons of the Trinity involved. The Spirit of God descending upon 
Jesus with the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son. The, the King had been crowned as the Son of God, yet his mission would start with a challenge to the very proclamation that by, made by the Father here. Just look real quickly at, at Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, what did he say? If you are the Son of God, The tempter is challenging Jesus at the very pronouncement of the Father. Look at verse 6. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God. Again, we see the challenge. Now, at this point we need to make a transition. Today, by God's providence, And as you may be aware, we are having a baptism. When we are being baptized as Christians, we are following the example of our Lord. And as I and others have argued, Jesus' baptism looks forward to His death, burial, and resurrection. Yet when we are baptized as Christians, it looks back at those things. In fact, our baptism represents or symbolizes being raised to newness of life in Christ. Our baptism is a public proclamation of our new identity, our new life in Christ. Now this morning we have the privilege to witness the baptism of Devin Tan. As I have said many times, baptisms are some of the sweetest times of, uh, in the life of the local church. Now, in the Gospels, the, the, the Lord Jesus gave us two, gave the church two ordinances, communion and baptism. And as a church, as you know, we regularly proclaim on a monthly basis the Lord's death as a church by observing the ordinance of communion. And according to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we're also commanded to baptize believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? We have the unique privilege of doing both today. Communion is the proclamation of Christ's death and our public identification of uh, our public identification with his death on the cross. Baptism by immersion as a believer is a public is the public proclamation that we have been saved. It is the outward sign of an inward reality of salvation. When we're saved, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and we are fully immersed in Christ. That's why it's important to be fully immersed. Therefore, we are called by Christ to be baptized by immersion in water, symbolizing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That command is non-negotiable. And as such, each believer in Christ has been commanded to be baptized. In Acts chapter 6, the Ethiopian eunuch obeyed this command a baptism by saying, look, water, what keeps me from being baptized? Well, all believers are to have this same attitude. So, when we are saved, when we come to know the Lord, we die to ourselves and are made alive in Christ. When we are baptized by immersion as believers in the Lord Lord Jesus, we are symbolically lowered in the water, and raised to newness of life. The water symbolizes the cleansing by the Holy Spirit and the fact that we are given new life in Him. This, is not, this not only proclaims uh, to a watching world that we are in Christ, it also gives us a reminder of our identity in Christ Jesus. Uh, John Calvin says it this way. I hope Devin can appreciate this. True believers, when troubled by sin, can always remember their baptism. Can always remember their baptism and so be assured of eternal washing in the blood of Christ. Just a, a sign that we of what has happened to us inwardly. So, with that, I think we are now going to transition to communion. Is that right? I put this together, so. We're going to transition to communion. So I'm going to give it over to Keith. And he's going to lead us through the first ordinance, which is communion, as we proclaim the Lord's death together as a body of Christ. And then we're going to 
reconvene with Devin and I in the waters of baptism as we baptize Devin. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brandon, for that, that wonderful message. Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, beginning his ministry, his coronation. It's amazing. You can, be, you can read the Gospels many times, but it's just amazing how the Holy Spirit will show you things that maybe you had not seen. And that's the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. So as Pastor Brandon said, today is the first Sunday of the month. It's the Sunday like where we, we like to celebrate communion as a church body. And we, again, we do this to remember that God sent his perfect son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and who went willingly because we're all sinners to the cross. Again, the sinless Lamb of God went willingly to the cross. And so we're going to take communion today as, to remember his amazing sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12 that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And then in verse 15 of that chapter it says, Through him then let us continually offer, offer up a sacrifice of praise. And that's why we take communion. We're remembering what Jesus Christ did, who Jesus Christ is, and also what he's going to do, that he's coming again. He's coming back to rule and reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're thinking about all of this and we're, we're praising him for it. But before we do that, we want to remember that the Lord's Supper is only for believers. And so if you're here this morning and you're not sure, you're not sure that you're born again, we, we ask you to please let the elements pass. And also before we pass out the elements, we're going to we're going to take a moment to prepare our hearts as we need to go to the Lord and have him show us any unconfessed sin. We need to make sure that there is no unconfessed sin or unforsaken sin. Paul tells us not to take communion in an unworthy manner. And so after a few moments of confession, we'll sing a song. And as we're singing, a couple of the men will, will then pass out the cups with the bread and the juice. And then we'll take communion together. But first, let's go to the Lord and let's prepare our hearts. Let's, let's all take a few moments and ask the Lord to show us any unconfessed or unforsaken sin. That the Holy Spirit will show us what we need to see. So let's take a few moments and go to the Lord.